Hi, Tom. Oh, so I haven't recorded in, uh, in this location with this computer for quite some time, actually. So um, we may get a bit of latency, but I should be able to uh, participate in my usual capacity. You s- it doesn't sound like there's going to be any problem. Very good. Very, yeah, it's, um, it's surprisingly close to our uh, Wi-Fi connection, so there tends not to be any latency or any drop-off. Great. So how has the week treated you, my friend? Uh, well, actually pretty good, but, you know, it's really boring shit about work. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> you know? Oh, I've had lots of that this week, too. Well, you know, actually, I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, what you actually have a get a paycheck from a company... Uh, and you go. You have an office somewhere that you go to every day. I have. Let me let me describe the situation to you. And I, I I don't talk about my work um, publicly. I give general descriptions towards it. But the one thing I do describe is that I work in a secure environment, which means I need to go through three checkpoints in order to actually get in the office. I had. Do you have to do drug tests? Oh yes. No. I I I, I think we've mentioned this on multiple occasions previously. But yeah. let me state again. Yes. In fact, not only do I have to have drug tests done to me, the whole background check process associated with working for this company was phenomenal. In fact, I think um, I don't want to either to realize too much about my work, apart to say that, um, I don't know, I feel it, it's a strange thing because it is very unlike anything that I represent online, but... It pays the bills. Yeah. Well, no, I was just curious. I mean, you, you actually have an office with a computer there? or I'm a cubicle worker, so I work along a long hallway, uh, which actually most of the people who used to work on that hallway have, um, what's the have mysteriously effect? died. And <laughs> <laughs> no longer there. Uh, so I'm, I'm still there. In fact, I think, it, anyway, I, I don't want to talk too much about this, but, um, yeah, I, I work in... Uh, a cubicle environment. I have a. I have multiple computers actually that surround me, and uh, yeah, it's. Um, I don't know. Long hours. Uh, and how many hours of- a week do you do that? I typically fifty plus. Last really? week, shit, more- and you have time to do all this stuff too. I you were um, there all day today. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I um, I I look forward to this. This is where I actually live my life, Heron. Yeah. Yeah, I just see. I just well, see. That's the thing is, I just never felt competent or smart enough or anything to be able to work full time and still do anything mm. that I wanted to do. I just, I guess, I didn't have enough energy, or I don't know what it is. But I just, it's what you're doing is like difficult for me to well i maybe i'm just lazy maybe that's it mm. i think that's part of it i'm just i'm just lazy yes i think um i don't know really what to say about the, that aspect of my life aside from the fact that it's not i mean i don't describe aspects of my life to people that are close to me as well i mean my feeling with regards to work and my wife takes almost exactly the opposite view, is that um, my ability to compartmentalize it into something that I do but don't, um, uh, what's the term, force it on those around me, so to speak, Mm. is probably a quality which um, I guess it's in some part in reaction to aspects of my parents, but in other parts it's just embodying the way I want to live my life. So, yeah, I think... um, 
you have to have a really strong sense of humor to do the kind of stuff that I do. <laughs> and uh, well, that's, that's I, listen, that's essential for any kind of fun life. Okay, what would be the point without a good exactly. sense of humor? Yes, you you have to be able to laugh at everything, otherwise you'll yeah. just get burnt out. And ironically, this was one of the topics that I wanted to actually discuss this evening. Uh, but in no particular order, I think you've self-selected that one, unless you have a topic that you want no, to throw out. Uh, no, I, I didn't really. It's just that as I was thinking before we talked, it dawned on me that I didn't really have any sense of what you actually do. I mean, you must have a fairly good sense about what I do, right? I mean, it's roughly my thing I mean, is really simple and and, uh, you know, and it's yeah. Yeah. And it got simpler. That was what that why I said I was happy is that we had a production meeting uh, Monday. Uh, the editors had been given free reign by the previous publisher and they totally screwed up my production routines mm-hmm. but we've got a new publisher and mm-hmm. uh, that w- she agrees with me that we need to get back to the regimen that i had set and uh, so <laughs> this week has begun to go a little bit easier very good yeah. very good and how how are you dealing with your irs $50. Oh, I haven't, I haven't been billed. Maybe they'll be as incompetent in billing me oh, okay. as they were ah, in, oh, very in detecting good. it. I haven't heard from them, so I don't know what's going very on. Very good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, yeah, I really can't editorialize too much about what I do, aside from the fact that it's less keyboard time. It's far more political than it is keyboard time, which I find quite strange. Are you doing analysis? I mean, are you reading stuff and making no, reports? No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I deal with uh, no, no, not databases. I deal with large. Uh, I deal with vastly complex systems, basically, um, and large aspects of it. I mean, not only you know the software writing, the software analysis. But also there are predictive aspects. There, See, I mean, I, I can't imagine who is your staff epistemologer. Oh, oh, that's a good question. I think the whole notion, the way that technology operates, is not. Um, no, I'm not talking about not, the technology. I'm talking about the people that have to interact with the technology. Their epistemology. Well, the. I guess, firstly, the thing that strikes me is very few of the people I work with read. They're like university educated, you know, yeah. master's you mean level. For, for recreational, kind of, you mean because they, they're interested in stuff? You mean. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't or really. Reading to keep of, up with their. I mean, job. for example, I, I'm, I'm, having a, um, I'm having a birthday thing here. And. Um, some of my former co-workers and I don't think, well, anyway, none of the people I work with really currently, I've invited a few of them, but didn't really get much of a response. Uh, and I guess the, it, it strikes me that there is a class of, I mean, what, what has happened with regards to technology is firstly vast outsourcing, which means that um, a lot of the tasks that I, I mean, for example, the stuff that I do currently I was thinking about this about the past 10 years of my life in terms of coming from the Bay Area, getting to the whole speculative technology section of the kind of dot-com boom. And when I got there, I was very much excited that basically anything was possible. And then progressively, I wouldn't recommend anyone... I mean, I wouldn't recommend children or young folk to get into the kind of stuff that I do. 
And I really, my whole attitude with regards to it has gotten considerably bleaker over the past decade. I think the you mean because you the, see no future in that, or, or uh, that, no? I mean, there's always going to be a future, and there's always going to be an ability for people to kind of survive. But the elements of creative survival that I have to employ aren't the same as anything that I do after hours. And I think the the sense that I I get rewarded for what I do. I mean, I I get bonuses and various other things and um i teach classes and i file a lot of intellectual property um but it's not really akin to the stuff that i do after hours and really the stuff that i do after hours is more an expression of my humanity than what i yeah. do in my kind of day-to-day well, life com- gee this is hard talking about this in such abstract mm. <laughs> Things, but I'm just curious. I mean, the company that you work for. I mean, mm. do they serve? Yeah, are they are they a force for good or a force for evil in the world? I would say that they were a neutral force. Um, I don't really. I can't think of any real good. I mean, this is the thing I was thinking about with regards to technology recently, particularly when I was in the Bay Area. None of the companies in the Bay Area. I used to think of Intel as a relative force for good. But now they're just so completely wishy-washy about the whole future of chip manufacture. And I think the whole movement of technology into cell phones is really quite a bizarre thing. I don't really think there are any technology companies that are a force for good. So then you get into some kind of continuum of kind of new, you know, zero sum to evil. And I think in an (laughs) abstract sense, in an abstract sense, um, the stuff that I deal with would be in that kind of spectrum. I don't. I, don't, I well, honestly because I, you are I, also I, in a position since you're there to um, tweak the system whenever oh, you get an opportunity. So. Yeah, and I <laughs> think know. that's um, the the nature. I mean, the company I work for has in this country probably about four hundred employees, and internationally and how many around the yeah the rest and internationally. I don't know, maybe three, four times that again. Uh-huh. Um, but, I, yeah, I think I've, I've, in the past 10 years, here are some statistics I can give you which might explain things a little more. In the past 10 years, I've had seven jobs. Five of those companies have closed. Uh, one of those companies, the section closed and then the company closed. And then the remainder was my move from the UK to here. Out of those seven companies, maybe three I will talk about publicly. Um, and the remainder are in some kind of bizarre stepping stone element. The one in the UK, um, the, the last one in the UK, a fellow who I was relatively close with killed himself a year to the day after I left the company. Um, and that had a really strong impact on me in terms of mainly because I'd had some phenomenally good conversations with the fellow. And, um, was it a surprise to you that he killed himself? Uh, he had said that he was he had children and he was married. The, the whole circumstances surrounding that was very strange because he lived basically two lives. He had to live in one city for work and his family was in another city and it was about three and a half hours. He killed himself equidistant. To, between the two locations in a large lake. Did he leave? Um, 
he did leave a note, note. but I wasn't. I wasn't. I obviously I was it's secondary, yeah. but yeah. he did leave a note in the car. Yeah. Um, he was someone who I had probably had some of. Well, I mean, to put it in very organic terms, he farted in my company. So we were close enough that he felt comfortable farting in my company. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, so that's, like, that's a good sign, I would say, yeah. I, or, I, or, or at least a sign of his inconsiderate... <laughs> well, there was a little bit of that as well. Of, of he, was, uh, yeah, he was in his 50s. He and I had some... He was a physics PhD, actually. Really? And he and I had had some phenomenally good conversations. Yeah. And I think it was very difficult for me in particular because... He was um, serially picked on by my manager, mm. and uh, he was. Um, it was one of these things where um, there were like three dimensions of management. He was one of the dimensions. I had a line manager who was the upper dimension. Then I had a project manager on the side, and I was between these three managers. But he was serially picked on by my line manager, and. Um, I'm, I'm, well, the only part of this that I'm glad about is that I'm glad I wasn't in the UK when it happened. Um, and I contacted all my former co-workers. So I was very close with actually. Yeah. Um, over the, over the period, uh, after his death, he was probably the only person who I knew there who his son, uh, married a woman in San Francisco. So he said that he'd come and visit Las Vegas. And ironically, on the night that he died, we were driving back into Vegas. We'd met equidistant uh, to Victorville in Bakers in Southern California um, to, I think, celebrate possibly my father-in-law's birthday uh, with a group. And we were driving back into the lights of Las Vegas, and I thought my former co-worker will be coming here soon and we'll be able to talk, and that was the night that he uh, committed suicide. Um, the kind of work that I do lends itself to that kind of behaviour, unfortunately. And I think the nature of the people that I work with, for example, um, the previous company I worked at, there was a fellow who we were sure was going to go postal. Uh, And it's just the nature, it's it's high stress, continuous issues, continuous things coming through, and no real sense of letting up, Uh, just constant work. No one takes holidays. You know, um, so I think this is this is actually leading into the topic of discussion. You've actually very well converged on what I wanted to talk about, which was a phenomena in the 80s when I was in Australia. I'm not sure if this was reported internationally, but um, it, it was noted in um, Japan in particular that men in their 40s and 50s were just dropping like flies. And they were basically the attribution was that they were working themselves to death within these corporations. Yeah, they were stressed to death. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. These news stories then just stopped. And I don't think the phenomena stopped at all. <laughs> That's right. They just quit talking about it. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. That You can't put in the corporate news that people are dying, you know, dropping like flies. In terms of my... Well, just look at... Well, if you're talking about Americans anyway. Yeah. I mean, just look at their health. Look at what they, you know... The rate, obesity rate, yeah, in the yeah. kind of food that people eat, and the kind yeah, of hours they keep, and yes, well, it's more than just yeah. that. Yeah, I so think it's, it's the whole, it's the whole culture is yeah. just rancid. You know? Yeah, and I mean, if you look at carcinogens <laughs> and the consumption of carcinogens, basically in the environments in which people work in. I mean, for example, the office environment that I work in, the air conditioning basically 
fills up with pollen and then irrespective of what allergies you have on the outside, you have basically three months' worth of allergies. However, I, I will be getting my flu jab thanks to my employer uh, tomorrow uh, for the year. So anyway, but uh, no, this whole notion of people just dropping dead from overwork through these corporations and the complete elimination of that, the whole notion that stress is actually a, a really strong health issue, but it's never actually talked about in terms of addressing stress as a, I mean, if, if environments were quantified based on their stress levels, and readjusted and re-altered, we would live in a very different oh, society. Oh, yeah, change the world. Exactly. Also, well, not only that, but you don't even have to change that. I mean, you can, obviously you want to, but uh, the stress is a reaction, and that can be t- retrained certainly. I mean, to a certain extent. You know, I mean, not probably not completely, but, you know, one person... I, I'm really uh, stressed by noises. I've got a really acute hearing, and it pisses mm. me off when... People are obnoxiously loud with their yes. cell phones, and yes. uh, it's just it's just there. I realize that I can't, under most circumstances, say anything about it. But uh, you know, but other people are totally unstressed by that. Mm. You know, I mean, it just doesn't bother them. They're just they don't care. They don't hear it. They're tuned elsewhere or whatever. Uh, but I can still control that quite a bit. I don't lose it. I don't, you know, go over and shout at people to quit talking so loud. Yes. <laughs> you know. Yes. Well, yeah, there is another. So that's, that's another factor, though. I mean, the environments we have are, you know, pathological. Hmm. Uh, and our reaction to that pathology is pathological. So, hmm. you know. Hmm. I found um, that I suffer white coat hypertension. Which is a I very interesting. Too. No, yeah, I have that too. Which is an interesting phenomenon because I've worn I've worn um, blood pressure meters, you know, wristwatch style blood pressure meters yeah. that track through the day, and as soon as I leave the doctor's office, mysteriously, goes, yeah. my blood pressure just goes right down. Yeah. But I also realise that I can actually affect my blood pressure just through my thoughts dramatically. Yeah. And when you have that notion and that level of control, you realize very quickly that um, your mind is probably more powerful than it's really yeah. given yeah. any description. Yeah. Con- the, the, the idea of reality that we were programmed with as children is yes. impoverished at best. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but it's a it's a phenomenon that I've actually seen kind of numerically kind of tick before me, and particularly in in doctors' offices and these kind of environments. I, I yeah. Anyway, well, you know, I've I, actually overcome that. I mean, uh, or not? I, I don't think I have overcome it, but apparently, I I have lost that just in having gone to doctors so much in the last six months. Yes. Um, I mean, because I never did in my whole life. I saw a doctor when I was in the Air Force when I was. 22 maybe <laughs> or 23 and that was the last time i saw a doctor until i went to the va six months ago yes and um well and a couple of dentist things and that's when i discovered the high blood pressure thing but anyway now when they measure my my blood pressure when i go in uh, each time it's uh, not nearly as high as it used to be Mm. around there and i've been uh, measuring i had high blood pressure i discovered it when i had some dental work done and um, they, um, you know, I started taking taking medicine for it, and I bought a blood pressure monitor, 
And uh, so, yeah, that you're and you're right. You can control, and you can actually you can actually feel it. You can feel your body pulse. Certainly, you know it, it's it's really fascinating when you actually pay attention to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I do wonder, however, about this notion of uh, kind of corporate death and the fact that uh, it doesn't appear to be being tracked anymore, at least in the public consciousness. Yeah, we've been there, done that story. It it may come back, you know, if something really you know gruesome happens. <laughs> <laughs> then it'll catch on in the news, and they'll make a big deal about it again. I guess so. I guess so. So um, I have half a dozen other topics. Did you listen to the KMO recording? Yeah. And what were your thoughts? Um, I, my, one of the thoughts I have is that I wish I'd taken notes. <laughs> <laughs> So you could reflect in a in a full. Yeah, so I could sound like I actually know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right as it is this moment, I really have nothing to say except that uh, I think probably he and I should have a conversation sometime. Certainly, yeah. He's very fixed in his views, and I think this is something that that's the uh, first thing I'll attack then. uh, Clearly, (laughs) yeah. No, I, I could see that coming. I really could. In fact, yeah, it was funny because my wife was here only for the first half of that chat. And she said to me afterwards that um, I guess the September 11th thing is just a a hot-button issue in a lot of people's minds. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, when when you start thinking of the government kind of strapping explosives to buildings and things like that, which I guess is what he was sort of alluding to, you start to really comprehend that there is a... In fact, a, a wide variety of different views associated with what happened. Yeah, so- and yeah, there's more than one map for the same territory. <laughs> very true, very true. I guess the thing I, um, I guess similar to your conversations, uh, some of, well, probably more of KMO's conversations I really have difficulty listening to. And I think it's initially the, He's very uh, open and friendly with his guests. And when a guest comes on who is interested in a particular view of kind of UFOs or these kind of things, I really, I just don't have an impression. He's had on some guests also, particularly um, singers, that I just find really, I mean, when when he and I talked, I I was on his podcast, um, well, I was recorded late last year, aired early this year, he asked me some very critical questions, which he then cut from the audio. But I don't think he would have asked so many critical questions to these UFO folk or these singularity folk. I think initially there was almost a kind of um, uh, posturing, perhaps, um, in our initial discussion. He hasn't invited me back on. I mean, I, I teased him a couple of times through the recording yeah. about that. But I think we have we have a n- number of mutual friends, but we have distinctly different audiences. And I think... Um, I don't know. The whole notion of community on location and all these kind of things, which is really what I guess he needs for his point in life currently, I find very curious. I'm not sure I... I when, well, the, the notion of a physical community versus a virtual in, community. In, in, yeah, okay. Yeah, people who live close by and meet and hang out exactly. together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's nice. I think that's a nice idea. I don't think it's necessary. I, I think it depends on. I think there are a lot of different kinds of people who need different things in yes. life, you know. And 
I've I've been in both. I've been in in groups, you know, where people met on a. I told you, like Kodo, you know, lot, lots of hugging went on there. <laughs> you know, yes. it was cool. Uh, yeah, and I like that. And if that yeah. was available, I'd sure as hell participate. But uh, I don't need it. Certainly, certainly. I don't know. Uh, my friend Bruce Damer went to his uh, Bay Area talk, and I guess the sense Bruce was very much a kind of child of McKenna in terms of spending a lot of time with him, and he's been very hopeful that there will be McKenna. Uh, who comes through this kind of movement. Uh, but I don't think he really got the sense that the KMO tour represented that. And I think the the peak oil stuff in particular, when it's just left on its own, really, I don't know, I'm, I'm repeating basically the conversation yeah. that I had with uh, with Kevin himself. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting... I mean, I think he seems to have success wherever he goes in these couch surfing tours and at least bringing together half a dozen like-minded people at various locations and considerably more like at other fun. locations. It does. <laughs> it does. Sounds like it great does. fun. Uh, and he's won various... I mean, his podcast is very, very popular, and he's won various awards or at least been shortlisted for, like, the podcast of the year and things like that, which has literally thousands of entries. Hmm. So this was in part my questioning about the PBS model, because he certainly has very loyal fans. Once you pay money for something, you'll treat it with a greater degree of respect, I think, than when you get it for free. So, yeah, well, I think I, that's part of it. I, 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 that's certainly part of, of what I see coming for myself, even. You know, I, I, it's not about the method of how the money gets there, whether you solicit it, whether they pay a fee or whatever. But um, for some people, that's what they have to contribute. Certainly. You know, you and I can sit here and talk because talking with you is interesting enough for me to keep me here. <laughs> uh, some Anyone else would be paying, uh, you know, $2 <laughs> a minute. Very good. Very good. Speaking of that, I'm not actually recording on this end. My wife's machine doesn't have the capacity to record, so hopefully your end is recording. Well, now's oh, a fine time to tell me. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I'm assuming you're recording this call, but now just treat it with extra... Uh, well, extra you assumed correctly, so Very you're, good. you're off yes. the hook. Very good. <laughs> Your OCD... Very good. Very well, no, good. it's not even that. So, it's, uh, it's my software. It does it automatically. <laughs> true, 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 true. So, yes, I, I, find, um, I find Kevin an interesting character. He, when he reposted it, he refused to carry the actual title of the show because it used the word Kevin. Uh, so I think there's some interesting deconstruction yet to be had there. Uh, well, listen, everybody, most people I know, no matter how intelligent or rich or well-liked or funny, still are stuck in their own story. Yes. I mean, everybody is. I am most of the time. It's just that I yes. know that I'm stuck in my own story, and I, that gives me a certain freedom. Mm. But most people don't know it's just their story. They think they actually, again, everybody thinks they know what reality is. They're mm. all fucking crazy, even though they may be very intelligent. Yes. I think I'm stuck in multiple stories. I have different stories that play at different yeah, yeah. times. Ah, yes. That, well, but that's better than being stuck in just one. That gives I guess you a so. certain perspective, because once you move around <laughs> enough between them, you begin to realize that you aren't any of those stories. Exactly. Yes, and then it becomes very, very curious indeed. Well, that's <laughs> when the fun starts. <laughs> yes, but very got, much yeah. so. Yeah. 
I was driving with a co-worker recently. This is a fellow who's actually he's finished getting divorced, but now his ex-wife is causing him all kinds of custody problems with his child. I'm one of the few people he talks to, I think because he realises he'll get considered answers from me, um, versus, I guess, his drinking buddies. Um, but he's relatively isolated uh, here. Um, anyway, we go for these drives so he can talk to me about his current issues. We were coming back from something a few days ago, and the discussion turned to uh, backwards music and backwards masking. Oh, yeah. And this has been, uh, well, I wouldn't necessarily say an obsession of mine, but certainly a passing an interest inter- of mine. An interest of yours. An interest since my, since my early teens when my grandfather um, accidentally passed on a tape, I think it was the Beatles' white cover album that he'd recorded, where the spools had been reversed and it was complete. And... Um, I found it absolutely fascinating, and since then, I, I listened to backwards music quite a bit. In fact, before getting on this call, um, I listened to some King Crimson backwards, because I actually prefer the song backwards than I do forwards. Um, but it occurred to me in this conversation that I was having with this co-worker that I'll never be able to join... I'm hung up on something here. Okay. Do you just, like, randomly pick, some, you know, like, a Shostakovich quartet and play it backwards? Or, yes. Well, no. Look, there are certain pieces of music. Some hint that perhaps there might be something uh, that they have in- intentionally inserted, or you just find it interesting to listen well, to it backwards, whether or not there's anything put there, or or what? I think all of the above. And I mean, I think the thing that strikes me about but, I mean, you do, in fact, go to the trouble to reverse. Uh, I mean, it's easy to do these days. Some very audio much so. file. And yeah. that you, for no other reason than it just struck you that you should listen to it backwards. Well, that it may be more interesting musically backwards than his forwards. So there are, I mean, there are um, pieces of music which well, are yeah, the, Well, the more... structure doesn't change. I mean, time, I mean, in that sense, the structure is... Ooh, no, 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 no. Well, no, I, I don't what? mean, I, no, I don't, you're right, symmetrical isn't the right thing. But it's uh, just, it doesn't lose structure by playing it backwards. It's just well, backwards. True, it can structure. even gain structure because the way instruments are played, like guitars, pianos, horns... These kind of things, the the reversal, the inflection. Oh, I know. I listen, the, I'm a, remember, I'm a musician, and I. I understand also, this. Yeah. So yeah, I know what you're talking about. The attack. It's called the attack. Well, so, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. and but uh, yeah, so it's not just that. I mean, I think the spoken word has various qualities. Backwards, this mm. King Crimson music in particular has very cuss words and various obscure like street terms from the 1960s. You, you mean that they have uh, literally put in there backwards so that you can only hear them if you listen to well, them Well, you, you wonder that. I mean, terms like scuzzball and dipstick Susie and all this kind of beautiful stuff that they put that you hear backwards. Uh, what is it? The stairway to heaven section. If there's a bustle in my intro, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. I mean, you get these these pieces of words where you, where you just think there has to be something in that potentially if, if it was reversed. Um, and I don't know. It's a it's a funny. What thing does it sound like when you play that section forward? It just sounds like reversed speech uh, in in among the guitars and the other vocals and stuff, or. Well, I mean, the the, the claim is um, 
what what's the the passage? Something well, you about... should send me the file. Actually, you have it. Oh, so, look, yeah, you, yeah, YouTube, yeah. YouTube, YouTube. Um, the see what happens. Probably the most famous ah. piece of backwards. YouTube oh, okay. will can, give I you can... those words, and then people start to say it, and a wide variety of other things. Oh, okay. um, so it's um, that's very well known. But I think the thing that strikes me about backwards music in particular is that it's like a completely different world musically. Um, and also, I, I used to compose things that were intended to be played backwards uh, against things that were being played forwards, and I had a, yeah. a sense I haven't done that recently. But it's a it's well, a good, Bach played that game too. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's well, it's easier to do if you write the notes than is if you think of the notes in a different form. If you just write the notes, then you could do it backwards uh, quite easily. But if you are constructing it in terms of like samples of audio. And I guess I don't think I used to think in terms of in terms of notes anymore. Um, I don't know what stage when I I guess it was when I stopped doing formal composition because I realised that I never needed to think of things in notes anymore. I mean I did work with musicians following that, but it was something where you could play the section and then they would immediately pick up on the section. Yeah, right. So I guess yeah, that was when I stopped thinking in terms of notes. But it would be. Yeah, it would have been easier for, but then I guess if we were a jazz musician or a rock musician or some kind of um, improvisational musician now trying to explain something backwards. Um, but anyway, so the thing, the point that I made that um, when I lived in the Bay Area, there was a show on one of the religious free-to-air television stations that was a half-an-hour show that was played, I think, every week or possibly every other week, that went through various backwards masking uh, things. Like, they, <laughs> you know, would play sticks and then say, and here it is backwards. And this was a fellow who had a, I guess the term is hair helmet, you know, a helmet of hair, uh, kind of extreme kind of, I guess, mid-20s, super nerd Christian dude who clearly enjoyed listening to rock music, but the only way he could justify this, you know, listening to Sticks or ELO or all these kind of things <laughs> was if he played it backwards and found obscure satanic so messages in everything. Exactly. So I would want, I must have been the only person that was watching this fellow <laughs> um they were looking for donations, and I thought I actually seriously considered yeah, you donations. Have said, Kip, you want to keep that guy there? He's doing you yeah, a service. And, and, so yes, I was thinking that was the point where um, where I should uh, actually call up the fellow and have a chat with him uh, about his particular obsession with backwards music and how yeah. it wasn't necessarily satanic, although that would have been some no, kind you of strange no, that, you don't want to push quite that hard immediately. I don't think so. <laughs> no. I don't think so. But, um, yeah, so I guess, yeah. You but could expl explain to him that you, too, are cursed by it. <laughs> An affliction for enjoying backwards music. Yes, we should meet in the dark alleyway and swap tapes or something. Um, but, you know, it's it's something that has um, been a kind of continued interest for a large portion of my life. And it is very much I associate it with, I guess, a kind of darker element in in human consciousness, but something that I really heavily embrace. Uh I don't know why it's necessarily darker. Well, I don't it know on what you want to do with it. You know? Yeah, I mean, no, I can. It's just you know, it can be. Yeah, if it's satanic, well, that's dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even think it needs to be because my sense is um, particularly. Well, I mean, when it was King Crimson, it was just finding words that sounded like 
bits of kind of, I guess, Cockney abuse being shouted out. But um, when it was, uh, I don't even think the um, the stuff associated with Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven is to do with sexual abuse um, and being done behind. Uh, it's very strange, and I don't even well, think see, I know nothing about this. It's funny because I, yeah, I just <laughs> see, apparently missed this universe. <laughs> this universe. I mean, this I remember strange. there was some discussion at some point. Yeah. That, well, no, uh, some was, Beatles um, song, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah Beatles, the Beatles are relatively mainstream backward stuff. Um, the it was Judas Priest where they were actually taken to court over backwards master <laughs> in this country. It's an amazing thing, freedom of speech, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, like, it really it's is. okay to say it for, forwards, but not backwards. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I, I think it was either to do with some children's suicide or someone yeah, being right, murdered. Yeah. So, yeah, but I don't know. It's always struck me as, um, I guess it, it comes back to the emotion that I had when I was about 13 um, I guess at my grandparents' house, listening to this tape and thinking, this is a whole new world, basically, for me to kind of explore that I hadn't even really considered previously. I used to play a lot with tape decks as a child, tape decks and record players. I'd get old broken tape decks and record players for next to nothing and repair them. Uh, and it was a central part of my life. And I'd record people as well. My, I think my grandparents um, had a tape of me recording my uncle at age three interviewing him about his musical group. So I think this whole podcasting phenomenon is just a way of... You know, that's interesting because uh, when I was when I was in college, just before I finally left, I was uh, majoring in philosophy, and one of the professors yes. and I had become good friends. And uh, we used to meet in his kitchen, and we'd, just, we'd talk, you know, just about philosophy, you know. And yeah. we actually started recording those things. Uh-huh. And, uh, but that was back in the days when we had these big, you know, that 30 inches per second reel to reel amp. Mm. We had a nice tape recorder, too. <laughs> you know? And, uh, I don't know what happened to them. They all disappeared <laughs> somewhere yes. over the years. Yeah, that, that's funny because that, you're right. That goes back and mean that tendency or that, that desire to capture stuff, uh, is there for me. Yeah. It has a very ethereal nature to it as well, though. I mean, certainly what we do with podcasts in terms of putting audio out there, and particularly just the sheer volume of audio that's put out there, it is a bit like it is a bit like radio in that regard, that it kind of disappears into an ether. It's, yeah, it's just out the there, you know, them. and yes. hopefully the right person will stumble across it. Yes. And I mean, moving into this, I, I described to you in our previous conversations the notion of the Internet Archive, but through oh, yeah. the first... Through the first reference to Stone Ape in the Wild that I found through some person who I guess had just found it through the Internet Archive, probably searching language philosophy, looking at their other posts yeah. and their blog, they had commented on listening to a Stone Ape podcast. And you, I guess, I, I'd mentioned the Internet Archive, but it never really kind of I don't know, crossed paths with your own thinking about what the Internet Archive was. No, I didn't really get it. I mean, I'd heard about the, you know, I'd heard reference to the Wayback Machine. And and I knew that the Internet was archived. You know, I didn't maybe use those words, but I mean, I was aware of that. But I've I've never actually had any interaction with it, and I was just something that I knew about. And it didn't really click for me until I heard you talking about it then. And I went, you know, that's what I need to know about that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I mean, particularly, yeah. I think our last conversation, I mentioned that you should put your uh, scanned PDFs or yeah. JPEGs. No, no, absolutely. That's you're absolutely right, and um, and I intend to do that. Um, I went there and I looked, and I it was a little confusing. There was no obvious place to go that says, you know, upload your material. So, well, I think the, the the thing has become phylumated to the point where the first step is to create an account and the second step is to kind of look around and see where there's something Okay, so that's I need to like establish that. an account there at least. And, yeah, and the I, account is free. It's just yeah, a use okay. name. All right, okay. uh, but once you have that, um, right. it, they then lead you through what are you looking to upload, yeah. you know, a home video, documents. Uh, no, that is so uh, cool. That's it's exactly what I was looking for. Certainly, certainly. And my, I mean, uh, Bruce DeKale, the fellow who founded the Internet Archive, has been relatively successful in keeping the thing funded. They were going to uh, have a substantial book scanning, and they did get, I don't know how many thousand books into it before they had to pull the plug on that aspect. A relatively close friend of mine uh, by the name of Jeffrey Ventrella, actually, uh, worked for them for a period of time, but he he no longer works there. Jeffrey's one of these interesting characters, actually. He's a long-time artificial life developer whose work has been pretty heavily um, used by the games industry with very little recognition. But he's a fascinating fellow. I spent about five or six hours in his company when I was in the Bay Area um, a few months ago. He had to have a nap, actually, um, in between our time together, I found this with people that if I spend well, well reasonable lengths of time with them, they just get kind of exhausted. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm uh, the same way. I wear people out. Yeah, most because, people just aren't ready for that much energy. <laughs> yeah, so we're a flight mindset. And I remember um, there have been certain circumstances where other people have been staying with me, or I've stayed with people where they've just disappeared for periods of time and then reappeared and. Um, I think uh, it's, I don't know, the um, it's the thing that strikes me is always this internal narrative. I guess whether or not it's my internal language monkey or what, what it is, my, it's your my language narrative. your machine. No, it's your exactly. language machine. Exactly. That's but the, what it is. Yeah, the, the constant running, I guess the, yeah. Um, yeah. It just does Not that. Focus. Certainly, <laughs> certainly, certainly. But, um, no, I think the Internet Archive is a remarkable resource, but one that um, has a certain degree of fragility to it. Uh, and I'm always cautious when I recommend it to people to say, you know, keep a, keep a personal backup no matter what. Well, just you, know, we, I have to, I, you know, I did have a, a sort of mini epiphany two days ago. Uh, the electricity went out here Ooh. for about 45 minutes. Oh, okay. I mean, it wasn't a big deal. It, that happens once a year, maybe, you know. Um, but usually it comes on after about three or four minutes. I mean, generally, when it goes out, it's only out for a couple of minutes, and then it's back on. So when this started hitting the half hour, I was you know, sitting here thinking, you know, what, if, what would happen if just the electricity went off and it didn't come back on? <laughs> you know? I mean, Certainly. that's not such a leap. It's, no. it's a very fragile system. Yeah, people don't show up to work, it it it'll it'll break down. Yes, and and there did are you all experience sorts of the ro rolling? I mean, I'm not sure if Southern California suffered them, but certainly when I lived in Northern California, I left towards the 
start of the rolling blackout phenomenon, which I yeah. later learned was Enron speculators. Yes, yes, to... we all, yeah, yeah, thank you, Enron, <laughs> as we, yeah. As we, yeah, I guess everyone in California did find out. Were you affected by the rolling blackouts of, the, uh, I guess, the... You know, I don't remember it as being particularly traumatic. I'm a, I remember it, but, uh, you know, it was just like, I just arranged my life around it. There wasn't much <laughs> I could do about it. You know? Yes. The technology companies I was working with at the time found it very surreal. I mean, all of them claim, would have claimed prior to the rolling blackouts to have had generators that would have protected them through this period. But I think they found very quickly that the generators, as you described, were there to cope with maybe 30 minutes worth of blackout, but yeah. not uh, an hour and a half. Yeah, and yeah. it really it really threw the Bay Area into, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it just struck me, you know, how fragile a whole, you know, if, if the electric, if that was the end of it, uh, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah. Uh, nobody I know would have a job. Yeah. Uh, everything would just come to a stop. I can't, I don't know what the hell, what would happen if the electricity didn't come back on. I'm dead. Yes. Yes. It is a phenomenon, really, isn't it? That uh, we are reliant. You know, the really interesting thing about electricity is I've heard accounts from uh, from uh, various folk about the way people used to live prior to electricity, particularly in terms of their sleeping patterns. Oh, yes, that's interesting. And I think the thing that I find fascinating is I will... Pretty free. I I'm a very very light sleeper. In fact, I'm the complete opposite of my wife in this regard. And I will frequently find myself waking about maybe one or two a.m. and you know just needing to get up, have move around. Ever, have you maybe. have you ever actually studied this phenomenon? Have you read anything about it? I've heard well, I've because heard, I've actually I mean, studied this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can, so um, yeah. is it a point where I should just conclude the? So yeah, I will typically let, let me I'll, let me give you a really I, simple overview that will set your mind at ease. This is the way it should be, right? Yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> the thing is, evolution works over millions of years, and it turns out that having varied sleeping patterns among the monkeys uh, assured that at some point of the day or night, somebody would always be awake and alert. Yes. And so a certain percentage of the population are night people. And some people need a whole bunch of sleep. Some people don't need that much sleep. And there's all yeah. these wide and all this bullshit we've been told about you need eight hours sleep a night. is just bullshit. Yeah. A lot of people prefer two actual distinct sleep periods. And during the Middle Ages in England, there are references to second sleep. Certainly. Now, this is exactly the point that I was making, that uh, actually people used to, you know, get up. Maybe, I don't know. Play a game of cards. A pipe and then go back to bed, basically. <laughs> yes. So, you know, a little nighttime fornication and, you know, yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, a, Yeah, take a little walk around outside, see so, what the weather's yeah. like, you know? Yeah. And I think this thing, I mean, the, the nature of my work means that I have to be in at work prior to 8 o'clock. In fact, there's some bizarro ritual which means that basically everyone watches whenever anyone else comes in. So there's a fellow who gets in at 7 every morning, and I typically get in between 7.30 and, you know, 7.45, sometimes as late as 8 if something has happened or if I need to pay some bills or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, the nature of waking up kind of and arriving at work and being still relatively asleep <laughs> is a phenomenon that I found through... 
you know, most of my workaday life that, uh, you know, being in a place by a specific time for a specific thing is just a, an, a, an external abstraction of reality. Well, you know, I have to get up about two hours earlier than I have to be at work so that I can go to Starbucks, drink coffee, uh, yes. log on to the computer, see, <laughs> you know, and check my Facebook yeah. page. And uh, try, yes, to, try to come, try to wake up. <laughs> you know? yeah. I think, um, yeah, I mean, typically... If I'm up around 1 a.m., I'll do something like that, mainly because I get a lot of international email as well. It just gives me a chance to see if I want to respond to things or, you know, I don't know. I The main thing that occurs to me about this sleeping pattern is it is my natural sleeping pattern. Yes. And, and that can change I over time, too. My sleeping over, patterns yeah. have changed uh, in, I don't know, 10-year, 5-year, 10 years, some multi-year period my patterns have changed dramatically over the years but uh no it, it just uh strikes me strange we're moving uh we're moving away from my how do we get onto the topic of sleep who the hell knows i don't know we just arrived here and it's not on my are? script and oh no <laughs> oh no unscripted thought an unscripted thought an unscripted conversation <laughs> oh, so uh, we're in new territory here, folks. We are exploring. We're exploring uncharted waters. My grandfather, who passed me the tape, and my grandmother are both still alive in Australia. They both celebrate. They were uh, born in the same year, so they both just recently celebrated their 89th birthday. Um, my grandmother did so last weekend. Are they in good health? Um, they're in pretty good health. I mean, I think the thing is that. Neither of them has anything that would indicate that they're... I mean, my grandmother um, fell and broke her hip a couple of years ago, so she is slowing down in terms of her movement. But um, she's still very cognitively active. My grandfather is slightly slower cognitively. Neither of them really like the telephone as a means of communication, which means that when you're physically in their presence, they seem a lot more alert than they appear over the telephone. Ah. They have a telephone which um, amplifies. I don't, I don't suppose they have an iPad. Uh, they both have. My grandmother has an iMac, oh, and really? my grandfather has. You see, my grandparents were very anti-computers, and then when I was about fifteen or sixteen, I pointed out to my grandmother that she could write the family history on a computer. And it would be better than writing it on a typewriter because it could be reformatted. And they actually published it, self-published it. Yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> so when oh, so she's that, hooked. <laughs> that was the seed of disbelief. I got her, I think, uh, SE30, a Mac SE30, back in the day. I mean, that, that dates the yeah. experience. Yeah. But um, for years, this computer, um, my grandfather said, oh, you know, that infernal machine, what have you. And then I think my uncle got him a an original or maybe second edition iMac. Not an iMac. Yes, an iMac. Uh, one of those uh, bulbous like dome, ones or bulbous dome yeah, things. Yeah. Uh, and that's connected to the internet, and my younger cousins kind of maintain that for them pretty well. Yeah. And they get email, and my grandmother has a Facebook oh, account. Right, perfect. All right, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah. I called I called them uh, to, to mainly wish my grandmother Have you ever tried, day. yeah, a video chat with them on Skype? They don't. I would think they they don't the computers aren't powerful enough for that. That's the frustration oh, they need that new computer. Okay. they need new computers, uh-huh. but they also don't really. I They'd think, love that, wouldn't they? 
they're not traditional. This is the thing, you know, people, people in this country have a perspective with regards to grandparents and parents and this whole notion of, you know, my, my mother would, you know, if, if my mother could use it, then it's a good thing. Well, you know, well, I was thinking more they'd like, I think that they'd think it's cool that they can do video chat. I think the, well, look, as the telephone is something that they, you see, they're not, this well, they is the whole notion the phones. They just go techno- jump right past the phone into the computer. Yeah, but I don't think, I don't, you think, don't think, they think that's the way they're phone. moving, huh? They, they like email. Yeah. They really like email. They're more yeah. text based people. They don't like the telephone. I don't think they'd really, if, if we if we um, provided a great grandchild, I think that might be the um, the means for them to get into things like video chat potentially. Hmm. But in, in general, kind of talking and what have you, so they just don't uh, like voice communication. I mean, if they don't like the phone, then yeah, you know, I they think like writing. They, do they write? Do well, they write email? They use email. Yeah, they're right. Okay, they're so, yeah. writers. Okay, they're yes. that's right. They're old. They're from another generation. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's probably too late for them. That's right. Well, they they found the technology that they like. Yeah, uh, that's right. They can they can use their horseless carriage. Certainly, <laughs> or, or so, their paper the horseless paper. carriage. Turn. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a phenomenon which my wife thinks is absolutely hilarious because it seems so completely disconnected from what she observes and also, I guess, what her family thinks of me. And that is that I am the black sheep of the family. My family in australia and it's quite a phenomena which i can't really explain other than the fact that i've described their dislike of technology i've described briefly their dislike of america and really they're the two options that i've made in my life but um <laughs> it it really it's quite surreal to me so i'm because i don't what is surreal I, to you their impression of me other people you mean listeners no, 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 no. I mean, my your grandparents and oh, my family's impression of me. Ah, and do they all have a unified impression of you, or do they all have different impressions of you? Well, they have a pretty unified and relatively negative impression of me. <laughs> okay. Which my wife finds just absolutely hysterical, because it's so... Well, what is it? Like, well, then, if, if they all share a thing, it must be pretty simple. There's probably what one thing that they disapprove of in you, and what is that? That I haven't conformed to some vision of what it is to be, I guess, an Australian well, or what something. What a bunch of assholes! Fuck them. Who cares what they think? <laughs> but well, <laughs> this not, is the not thing. Even because... worth, that's not even worth debating. Well, yeah, I, this <laughs> is those the... stupid language monkeys. Well, <laughs> this way, is you don't waste great. your time okay, okay. Look, Aaron, language Aaron, monkeys. Aaron, you're throwing yourself into pure heronisms here. <laughs> let's move on beyond the heronisms and let's explore this ridiculous situation. Because my wife finds it absolutely surreal. I mean, my wife. I agree with her really thinks that it is so fun. And the thing is, because I refuse to acknowledge it, like I'm friendly and and relatively open with them and cheerful. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, well, just and, because they're idiots, there's no reason for you to be one. Well, I don't know. This thing needs to be editorialized in that fashion. But they do hold these views very strongly. Yeah. And it's something that makes well, me really... Brain damage. It's okay. I, I understand that. I mean, that's... Blame that's, that's yeah. It's the, the exact thing. Yeah. So um, I have this, I mean, I have a generation that is, I mean, I'm the eldest of the grandchildren. And um, I may have mentioned this, my uncle basically lost contact with his children for a number of years. However, they were all back 
in my grandparents' house for my grandmother's 49th, 89th birthday. And I had the opportunity to talk to all of them on the telephone of these three children that had, had disappeared. The eldest I had been able to reconnect with via email and these kind of things, so I, I know a bit about her. Her younger brother uh, now lives with her father um, and basically has adopted her father's uh, lifestyle in terms of, I don't know, not working and just enjoying the seasons and this kind of stuff. Um, and the youngest is about 15. They're somewhat more sympathetic to me because they've not actually been part of this whole narrative. I think the... It's a very strange thing. I can't... I mean, as, as I have described to you, I was born with a cleft palate and multiple... Well, an extra toe on one foot and just bizarre teeth and things like that. Exactly. exactly. So... <laughs> When I was younger, I think there was a perception that I should just, I guess, grow up in the shadows and really, mm, you know, yeah. acknowledge all this sort of stuff, which I'd never have done. In fact, I joke with my mother whenever she raises the fact that I might be in any way disabled, which is still in the forefront of my mind. Yeah. Um, the thing that also strikes me is that um, my grandparents in particular see me very much like my father and that strikes me as very strange because i'm quite distinct from my father and moreover i don't necessarily well my father isn't an angel i don't necessarily think he's the the complete devil um and i think the notion of having any well just disagreeing with the whatever the current thinking is on any given topic seems to cause offense so i guess there have been a number of stages in my life where just by being who I am and occasionally, I mean, not not aggressively, but just saying perhaps there's another way and offering, you know, additional thoughts. I've basically, I guess, been alienated from these people. Yeah. Well, um, but any way you do it is perceived as aggressively by them. Mm, I mean, us well, usually. I mean, maybe I'm wrong in your case, but I, I mean, you, my experience, I mean, I've experienced the same kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, my experience is that, well, of course, I didn't try. I probably could have tried to be gentler, I, I guess, than I was. But, yeah. but I mean, I really did try to make it work, and it seemed that no matter how much I tried, uh, people still see questioning their basic assumptions as a threat. Yeah. I guess there's a perception in Australia which is very much associated with uh, kind of conventional wisdom or the certainly the views of the middle class. So, for example, the, I mean, the, ironically, the other in Australia has typically been the, the Aboriginal population. And the kind of, I don't know, patronising and just bizarre kind of, I don't know, it's, it's ironically, it's what I associate with the worst aspects of the Democratic Party in this country in terms of just an inability to kind of deal with the fact that you, if, if you're going to work with or work for the benefit of the general population, including the poor, you probably need to understand, you know, some of the basic aspects of poverty as opposed to, um, you know, being Ted Kennedy, I guess. Um, and the same kind of thing holds true in Australia that, uh, for example, there was this long-standing movement to say sorry to the Aboriginal people. And it was literally just for the Prime Minister to say sorry <laughs> and through this whole period, Sorry. oops, through, through this whole period, the Aboriginal, like the the um, 
places that the Aborigines were living in the outskirts of, you know, the outback was constantly like they had bans on uh, pornography and kind of jackboot police going in and smashing down doors. And over this whole period, the narrative of the middle class was the prime minister better say sorry. You know, it was a very strange thing and I could never understand that. And there were all these things that occurred, um, through, I guess, my childhood, where whatever the popular narrative of the, you know, intelligentsia middle class was in Australia, it just made absolutely no sense to me and was completely counter. And also, I could find in, you know, two or three very basic steps how this was blatantly offensive. So you're right. Actually saying that out loud makes me realise that having said those things, it probably would have been seen as being deeply offensive to a lot of these people. But at the same point, if you can't deconstruct your own element, what are you doing? Well, that's why I just divided people into, you know, language monkeys and uh, earthlings. Yes. You know, that they're, we're not the same species. I mean, this we're all biologically interbreedable, but that's irrelevant. What really counts is the, is the way we think, the way our epistemology functions, actually. So we conceive of ourselves in the world, and that's the that's the factor that's going to make any difference to a future. I think. Mm. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, you know, if the Tea Party wins and they get their way, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the systems are are just simply no longer functional. We need well, to create a new world. Yes, well, um, if the Tea Party wins, then we're certainly going to be moving a lot faster to the future that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll be real interesting. You can do yeah. that. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the... Yeah, uh, it, may it, be, it may be just what we need, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, man. But um, elect the first black president and then put the Tea Party in charge. <laughs> yeah. What a country. Only in America. Well, yeah, maybe Hungary as well. I understand Hungary's moving rapidly to the far right, having had a, a kind of well. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing equivalent to the centre left in this country. But well, nationalism uh, is the plague that we still have to eliminate. Yes, you know that 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 is a plague upon our species. Certainly, certainly. Well, the failure of the military. I mean, this I think is a McKenna idea. The failure of the military in uh, in Europe in particular and the immense sense of shame and horror, I mean, First World War, but then really truly after the Second World War, was very strong in terms of eliminating uh, a pervasive militarism, which had obviously existed for at least three centuries in Europe. And I don't know how... You're right, it's still not back, is it? There, the, nobody's really highly militarized in Europe, are they? yeah. Because they, well, they, you know, they were slapped around after the Second World War in particular. So the question yeah. is, I mean, this is McKenna, this isn't Barbalay, but the question is when the same will occur in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, certainly the way it's headed, it could occur relatively quickly. Well, the uh, cost of, the, you know, of all this military is, I mean, really, that's the whole issue. I mean, yes. No one even talks about that, but that's why the economics are a problem, is we're spending all of our resources on something that is of no value to our lives. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, the bizarre situation, and I don't necessarily know that this will be the case, but if Karzai and the Taliban 
create a peace accord, then it really has a kind of very surreal circumstance where, you know, the US military and NATO, whatever that might be, uh, remaining in Afghanistan will create, yeah, it'll be a very, very strange circumstance. Yeah. But anyway, but anyway. So, well, you know, talking- that, that, just for a second, there's always this whole thing about uh, Afghanistan and the Taliban. It struck me as for us, it would be relatively simple, it would seem, to just like put a fence around it. It's a very small area mostly in the mountains, and who the fuck cares what they do? Well, the problem is Pakistan, because basically we give a lot... Well, the theory is we give a lot of money to Pakistan. The reality is we give a lot of money to Pakistan so Pakistan can buy American jets and tanks. Yeah, no, but yeah, I understand. I'm just talking about... Yeah, forgetting the political thing. I'm just saying that the physical areas where, like, the Taliban want to run their world could pretty easily be isolated. Well, that would be what very expensive, but not as expensive as yeah. this bullshit we're doing now. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I think the, the issue with the Taliban is that they primarily exist in Pakistan, and you can't really fence Pakistan because, you know, terrorism creates very interesting bedfellows, and Pakistan apparently is one of our allies because we give them all this money. Um, so if we pull all this money, maybe they will no longer be our allies, and maybe in your view, then we just put an additional fence up. I think well, it's India just about isolate. If 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 a particular virus is cons- is fit, you can if it actually is per- primarily in one location, then technically you ought to be able to isolate it. Yeah. Well, aside from the um, continued Chechen conflict and what that does to well, predominantly the people in Moscow. There really hasn't been much blowback for Russia getting out of Afghanistan. Really, the Chechen conflict is completely different, um, although it has some you know, similar fighters that have come from Afghanistan and gone back to Chechnya. But I think certainly... We're way over my head here. I, I don't know facts about any of this stuff. I'm certainly <laughs> not a student of any of this. I'm mouthing off about stuff that I read on Google News. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a student because I think basically history is phenomenally interesting in this area and it's something that could teach us a lot. And if only we could educate, you know, even a small number. Well, I, yeah. Now, this is people, crucial stuff. This is, there are several pieces of the puzzle to creating a world that actually works and this is part of the what needs to be dealt with. Yes. So my um, my cousin, my grandfather, who previously mentioned, was a, a general practitioner. He was a family doctor. And my cousin is the only one of our generation that has gone into medicine. So he's, he's the, the golden grandson. So he's so much say. adored, yes. Very much so. <laughs> he is in Hungary currently, uh, not in the area affected by the toxic sludge, but um, he was talking about going for a holiday in the Caucasus. And my knowledge of the Caucasus is that they're a hotbed um, for uh, European uh, Muslims to be uh, radicalized and mm. particularly trained. Um, I've always had a real interest in that part of the world. I don't think I could go there to live. Um, the interesting statistic that I remember reading about uh, Chechnya in particular is 15% of Chechens support the uh, anti-Moscow rebels, 
10% support the, uh, you know, the Russian soldiers, and 75% would just like peace. And I think that probably the accurate percentages associated with any area of, uh, of bizarre kind of ethnic uh, tension. Um, but um, it's a very interesting part of the world. And I think the way that this part of the world continues to be, as, as you say, if you don't know about it, you wouldn't know its effect. But it's affected both Afghanistan and Russia. Uh, and, um, yeah, I don't know. I can't see myself going there for a holiday, but my cousin is going there for a holiday. <laughs> well, from where he is, I guess that is a holiday. Yeah, from, from Hungary, <laughs> I guess. But uh, it's very beautiful. I mean, it's it's mountains and lakes and a wide variety of other things. And well, I it's think, a wonderful uh, planet. Yes, it is. It is. So um, so concludes my uh, scripted possibilities. Oh, I, I did no, want to talk about your keyboard. Oh, because nice. I think yes. your keyboard is an interesting paradox, but I want you oh, to... Oh, love. Good, let's go. I love talking about the keyboard. Because the keyboard... So you mentioned that um, in the uh, podcast that you've just released, which I will uh, re-edit and put in the Stone Oak feed, about the keyboard. The fellow who gave you... Well, I guess you had the idea of the keyboard, and then the fellow gave you $20,000, and you built the keyboard... And then I guess he wanted to have some editorial control over it. Can you introduce, for folks who aren't familiar with the keyboard, can you introduce it as a, as a thing? It is, um, it is the future of keyboard music. The piano, the way the black and white keys are arranged on the piano has a historical reason. You can trace the origins of that, but it's a disaster for the hand and the eye and the mind. So I redesigned the uh, organization of the keys into a reasonable way, and it makes playing the keyboard, I claim, hundreds of times easier than uh, learning to play uh, on an old piano keyboard. And I've redone music notation to go with that because the notation, well, anyway, that's what it is. Have you ever, are you familiar with what a carillion is? Um, you're talking about the bells? Yeah, it's like a it's like a tall building. Right, yeah, okay, with yeah. With bells I, that are played yeah, within it. Yeah. Have right. you ever been inside a Carillion? No. They have um it's I mean if you've ever seen a like a an organ that you play with both your hands and your feet. Mm -hmm. You know how basically an organ yeah. that you play with both yeah, your hands and your feet has the keyboard yeah, on I the feet yeah, and the keyboard hands. Yeah. I'm explaining to the audience as well. Ah, sorry, I'm okay. sorry. So I'm, I'm, sorry. I'm giving it okay. So You've got to keep has reminding a, me that there's all these... There, yeah, there are actually a few people listening in as well, just, <laughs> just you and me talking. So the Carillion has basically multiple layers of these keyboard structures, so it becomes almost... Uh, uh, well, it's a multi-dimensional set of keyboards, basically, that all kind of stick out from... And they're all wooden, and you kind of hammer them with your, with your fists, yeah, basically. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, but the interesting thing that strikes me about the keyboard is that the fellow gave you this money to build the keyboard. He then wanted some editorial control. He wanted to change the, in the, the prototype that I have now. There are three ranks of keys. Yes. And uh, he didn't like that. No, in fact, there are four. Jesus, I haven't even looked at it. My <laughs> brain is dead. There are yeah. four ranks of keys. He didn't like that. He he thought it looked too complicated, and he wanted it two or or maybe three, and I yeah. wanted to go to five. <laughs> yeah. So that was the end of it, you know. But uh, that, this is that, exactly the point that I'm. Breaker, you know, this is the point that I'm making. And then 
the thing with the keyboard is that it's now something that you would need to patent, isn't it? Yeah. Well, they don't need to, but if 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 I'm if it's going to turn into a business, then yeah, then that that would be the thing to do because I never got a patent. He pulled out. They say he didn't want to. He didn't like the way it looked, and didn't think that he could sell it or do something with it. It just didn't ring for him. Yes. Very sort of intuitive kind of guy, and that was his take on it. So that was the end of it. Yeah, I mean, my assessment of intellectual property is that you could probably... The design patent is the cheapest form of patents, and you could probably almost do a design patent yourself. Well, I could, but that would take many, many hours of work on something that I don't really give a shit about. That's why it comes to me being lazy. (laughs) If you no longer care about the keyboard in that regard, why don't you allow... Like, why don't you take photographs of it and make it a thing which is seen and... Oh, well, I, well because I still hold out the possibility of making billions of dollars off of it. Okay, so... But, this is so if that happens, fine. And if it doesn't, when I die, it, it will be available. Or it will if be I get rich in the meantime, then I'll make it available. <laughs> I guess this is an interesting paradox also associated with open source. But the the, the nature of our discussion related to this side and i don't i don't even want to mention the w word because it um it caused such uh indignation the w word i'm not Uh, i don't know what the w word is am i that the wealthy the wealthy oh that okay it it caused such indignation let's just move away from that but i think it's an interesting paradox that the way the kind of traditional way that you would get something like this out there is to do exactly the steps that you have done you find an investor you build the prototype, and then hopefully the investor kind of stays on enough yeah. that you can get the patents and what have you. Yeah. However, you found, I guess, I don't know, I, I, I've thought about musical instruments. I built um, a few stringed instruments when I was younger and electrified them uh, and caused, you know, not fires, <laughs> but certainly various things that, uh, various interesting electrical effects out of electrifying uh, particular stringed instruments. And certainly, I mean, as as we've described, um, while you tune many pianos, I tune one piano quite frequently. So I do have that kind of interest. But um, I've never really felt that I, I built a, an electric lute when I was maybe 14 or 15 that uh, I carried around in a sack to various musical things and pulled it out. It was kind of a cross between... I guess, a sitar, an electric guitar, and it was all done with uh, pine because it was the only wood I had attachment to, which meant that the actual structure of it didn't affect the sound. It was the vibration of the right. uh, notes and other things. Like an that, electric guitar. Basically, yes, yeah. yeah. So um, so I have built instruments in the past, kind of curious instruments in the past. <laughs> it's not something that strikes me that I don't know. No, you just hit on something that's obvious, but I, and, and actually I've seen it and sort of knew it, but I didn't know that I knew it until just now. <laughs> and it's that in electric guitars, of course, the shape of the body is totally irrelevant. Yes, you know, certainly. And what it's made of is totally Hence all the wide variety of quite it's strange all looking electric instruments yeah, that still produce just, sound. But that's just a fascinating uh, concept. Some aspect of your keyboard. Oh, just, I guess, the yeah, the, the paradoxical nature of kind of creating something that... The, I don't the know. financial... I mean, in this world, in the, in the world of capitalism, if this thing was handled properly, 
there's a chance that it could be a multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, it would totally change the music industry, the mm. keyboard side of it anyway, including mm. the printing music and, and a whole bunch of things. It would be enormous if it, you know, if it caught on. And it, as I claim, is, like I say, hundreds of times easier to learn. So all the people who tried to play the piano and after six months realized how much work it was going to be gave up because they really didn't care that much. Uh, Here's the interesting thing, though. The immediate a priori sense that you have of this wasn't conveyed onto the investor. Well, he was just in it for the money. And for if he thought he could make money, I mean, okay, so that's that's an interesting point. I mean, what you're saying there is you feel as the creator that you could make a small fortune out of this, or a huge fortune out of this, (laughs) but this the investor did not see that. Yeah, he didn't see that. He didn't think, uh, like I say, he well, again, he's a friend, so there's you know, there's more going on here. I mean, I have some knowledge of him. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know. But but in any case, yeah, his evalu- he didn't like the way it looked. He he it became a kind of ego thing almost. And his, he wanted no more than 3 and he really wanted only two ranks of keys. He said it just mm. looked too complicated and he didn't think anybody would go for it. Mm. And he and, continues to be a friend of yours. Yeah. Listen, I've got the keyboard. How can I argue with a guy giving me $20,000 to build my keyboard? <laughs> I thank him every day. Very good. Very good. Yeah, it would but have been you- great if he would have gone on and said, you're right, it needs another rank, let's do it. But he didn't see it. Are they weighted keys? Oh, the keys themselves could be a, No, they won't be. Well... No, I've redesigned it. The one, the the model that I have is actually not the one that would be built next. I've redesigned the key mechanisms. Mm. So, uh, no, th- this has nothing traditional about it. The keys are basically resting on top of uh, a, a multi-layered foam bed. Okay. With a an, uh, a certain kind of. Uh, device at the bottom that measures the distance between the bottom of the key and itself. Okay, okay, okay. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing, the, the notion of the the invention that one keeps with everything that you have described. If there was no, if, if I was born into a reasonable world, <laughs> you know, then I, I, this, I would just be publishing pictures of this and talking it up and, and saying, here, look what I came up with. What do you think of this? Yes. I guess even with a certain degree, I mean, the, the whole notion of intellectual property protection is a very strange one, because even if you have a company that has income, you can still be very quickly squashed by a much larger company, particularly in the field of intellectual property litigation. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just the, the whole thing is not a, an arena I want to get involved with. It's, I'm not interested in playing that game. Mm. You know, now if somebody, if I get affiliated with someone who wants to deal with that, that's their issue, not mine. So, so <laughs> what you're describing here is really going to, I don't know, Roland or Moog or something like that, and just well, saying. One, well, there are two possibilities. One would be to actually develop the instrument in house, but that's really expensive. You know, I mean, yes. to actually go through and develop the new instrument. The other thing, obviously, is to license some already big-time keyboard manufacturer and allow them to, you know, license the keyboards. 
But here's how, I mean, here's how that works, or here's how that worked for me in terms of technology. It required me to physically move myself to the part of the world where there were people that were doing the kind of stuff that I wanted to be doing. And then it required a certain amount of work to actually put myself in front of those people, basically. And I guess my sense with regards to the dream of doing it in-house is well, that it's you're... Not, trying- it's, not a, it's not important to me to do it in-house. I don't care. Okay. No, but I just I want guess... to see it, man. I just want to see it out there and done right. Hmm. So is is it is the that there is a similar part of the U.S. where if you were, I would think that with Southern California actually. I don't know that much about um, the musical, particularly the electronic music instrument manufacturing market in the U.S. and where you know the mecca of this technology is but i would imagine oh, that there'll probably be right here yeah. that's exactly my point uh, yeah probably. so there's probably somebody in la who wishes they knew about this yes but so i don't know how to what, find those people well this is the thing this is the this is the interesting thing is that um well i mean the first aspect is that there are like this caltech and that has a music program i know the fellow who's at, uh, one of the fellows at caltech music electronic music in fact um, there's CalIT Squared that I think has an electronic music program. I mean, what you need to do is track down, probably through the universities, the electronic music programs and get a sense of whether the instrument makers or whoever does R&D for these instrument makers actually come through there. I have I have absolutely no real knowledge aside from the universities in Southern California yeah. that do music-related stuff. And then perhaps move from inquiring with those academics without giving away too much to actually meeting the people that are designing and making the musical instruments, I would imagine it is a relatively conservative market in terms of just yeah, the kind this of is gonna, I think this is going to work if I meet the right person. I think there's someone who will see this and go, you know, you're so fucking right. Let's mm. do it. And I don't. So, and, if, and if anybody has to be convinced about it and they want to see if the numbers add up, um, hmm. you know, they're going to get whatever they get. So the fellow I knew anyway, who was at, um, I think, Cal Arts, a fellow by the name of Tom Erb, I've described in a previous recording that we did because we wandered around L.A. together, I guess, in 2000, and we talked about programming. Uh, and he did some quite interesting stuff at Cal Arts. Um but I think there are probably there's probably quite an interesting electronic music community. Um, it's just a matter of I mean, first the first step is finding mailing lists and things like that online, um, and just getting a sense of where they meet and, and where. But I get the impression. When did you actually build the the keyboard? You know, um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, I could reconstruct it. I suppose it's probably I've had it for. Let's see, where was I living? I've had it for at least five years now. Okay. So, and it still works. They did a great job. People, I, I had to hire two people, a MIDI person and a, and a guy mm-hmm. to build the actual instrument itself. And they did a great job, man. It still works. Yeah, well, for $20,000. It ought to. Yeah. Damn You'd right. hope so, you know. <laughs> uh, is, is there a possibility to make an acoustic version of it? 
Uh, no, it's a MIDI keyboard. It's really committed to that. Uh, it, okay. I mean, you could. I mean, you could do it. There's no reason why you couldn't, but it'd be extremely expensive and pointless. Right. Because, I mean, certainly, yeah, anyway, continue. Yeah. Certainly what you describe, I can imagine a kind of um, elongated kind of harpsichord box or something like that that might be well, able to well, do you that. Could, well, if you're, gonna, if you're relying on uh, a physical mechanism, you could then basically you've got harpsichords and pianos and, uh, you know, and various in-between things. Mm. And you could apply this keyboard to those. I mean, it, it would work, but it would be complex and pretty expensive. But yeah. you could certainly do it. So the keyboard is kind of mentioned as a kind of secondary thing, but you'd still talk about it. But I think there's also an element, there's a metaphor of what you want to do with this website and the keyboard as well. And I was trying to think about this. I was listening to a recent series of podcasts while I was walking and just trying to get a sense of how these two things fitted together. Because certainly your description these of the, two key, thing, wait, and these the two keyboard, the keyboard and, and your and your perhaps, to the, sum up all the language the, stuff. Right? Yeah. Okay. Perhaps the site or perhaps the idea of the school. I'm not yeah. sure whether... Well, it's, it's all under the term of gendo for me. Yeah. Okay. So I guess the... Yeah. Everything that I or everything that I try to do in the I don't see the, any connection between these except that they both came out of me. Uh, mm, the the keyboard thing is just it's just a particular realization of an insight that I had. Yeah, but there's still it's the element not necessarily of the unknown but the unexplained, which I think is still. I mean, certainly for me, in terms of my discussion with you and also listening to other recordings that you've done. I don't really get a sense of, I mean, this is why we talk about the site in particular, not so much the school, because I don't really get a sense of what it will look like. Yeah, I don't either. And I don't understand. That's, that's yeah. my point. So yeah. the difference that, is that That's part of what I'm still working on is trying to clarify that vision, because it's just not clear at this point. Mm. It, it, there are too many. Actually, it's begun to get clearer, though, in that there's a way, I think, to use all of the uh, multiplicity of it and still unify it somehow without losing uh, the independence of these different ways of looking at it. And that's mm. the value of this hypertext medium, is that that becomes not quite so problematic as when you try to write a book. Mm. What? What occurred in the past month that moved the five stupidities to the four stupidities? Um, because the first four, any eight-year-old can understand. Um, and hmm. some, and the, 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 fi the fifth one basically just pisses people off. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's like, that's graduate work. <laughs> we'll talk about that one if you can get through the first four. Yeah, but it's know. good I'm... that everybody knows there's five because then they'll ask the question, <laughs> and then I can say that. And for that small percentage of people who are actually interested in the sort of I don't know, the, I don't have the right word for it, but you know, beyond what we normally think is normal, <laughs> you know, or about consciousness and so-called spirituality and all that shit. Uh, the mm. concept of identity is a fundamental issue in that domain, and it turns out that language has a lot to say about 
how we identify the I. Mm. Like I say, most people are identified literally with the voice in their head. That's what the self has identified itself. Do you think that's the... Well, but you see all this, the idea that, um, particularly with children, that they are represented in the group that they are a part of. And that is not the voice that's in their head. That's very much their external representation, what they I'm wear. Sorry, say, wait, say that again. I, so there's I, this I notion that groups of children... And I guess adults, too, in terms of the clothes that they wear and the crowd that they hang out with and these kind of things defines who they are more. I remember when I was in high school. Well, not who they are, but who they think they are. Exactly. And um, what was was the line? What you wear makes an important statement about who you (laughs) think you are doing. And they (laughs) they, they wrote that. That's great. That's good. See, that brings it into consciousness. You know, you can no longer just say, I need to be cool. You know, you've actually got to own up to it, you know. Yeah, no, I remember. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so this this notion of appearance. Who are you going to pretend to be? Yeah, who do you think you're doing? Um, So I think the... Yeah, it's this idea of when music stops being songs that you sing and starts being songs that you buy. There's some some great... Music was uh, always something you did. Yes. You know, or you listened to, but but yeah. yeah, But no, it's it's the notion that you have the ability to produce music up until a particular... That's why my keyboard is so important. My keyboard. Listen to that bullshit. Listen to... (laughs) Anyway, listen. This, this is what I was trying to deconstruct here, yeah, and you, right, yeah. Well, I feel that. Way. I feel really attached to it because I really, can just see is, that so many people who gave. I've talked to so many people who started to play the piano and then gave up. But that's. I don't think that's to do with the piano as a form, because you find that with every single musical instrument. No, I, I understand that, but a certain percentage of those people would have seen. I mean, with my keyboard. Mm. A certain percentage of those people would actually see significant progress in six months. I mean, they'd so this be playing is, real music, and but this they is the notion. Quit. Yeah, this is the notion of both Kadai and Suzuki. The Kadai method, in terms of what I can't even say it anymore. So so far, me whatever Tido, you know, re, re, reclaiming the notes as, mm-hmm. as these words and then whatever builds from the Kadai method. And also the Suzuki method, um, I can't even remember how the Suzuki method, but this is all to do with the notion that the piano and the toe, and really, um, what, what is it? Is it, it sparked a Beethoven when they changed the, Beethoven was the first modern composer because they had changed the, Rather than using fractions, they used logarithms on the notes. And no, if you no, play... it goes back to actually. I can tell you the whole story because that's integrally related to my keyboard. Okay. Uh, Sixteen ninety-two. A guy named I don't remember his first name. His last name was Verkmeister. Wrote mm-hmm. a book on or a treatise on called the Well-Tempered Clavier. Certainly, yes. <laughs> and it was okay. a different tuning system. Exactly. Prior to that time, if you were playing a piece in in the key of C. If the if the second piece was in uh, G, then it didn't sound quite as nice because the way they tuned, it was different. You know, it would sound really good in the key of C, but if you moved up to, like, F sharp, yes. it would just sound awful. It would exactly. just be grossly out of tune. And yeah. so Werkmeister figured out the mathematics of this thing, and the number is the 12th root of 2. Actually. Exactly. And 
and now you can switch seamlessly from key to key. But the the price we pay is that the sound of a piano is really grotesque. If exactly. You, if you've never heard a piano tuned to just intonation, play yes. in the key of C. Have you ever heard that? Yes, I have. Oh. Yeah. Or yeah. when you listen to a good string quartet play. Yes. They, they play in real intonation, you know, yes. pure beatless thirds. It's just fucking awesome. No, exactly. Okay, so we're speaking the same language here, Aaron. And I think that's the problem. That's the reason that he, because this whole imposition associated with with logarithms versus fractions means that the with equal temperament now i mean i don't see i mean we could go back but that and you can accommodate that's the beauty of midi keyboards is they can be programmed to do anything i understand that but i guess what i'm saying is that there is a kind of mind that links to them the underlying logarithmic mathematics which are probably more in tune with playing any musical instrument than the general populace and that's what you it's a self-selecting group rather than a group that um is well, it's a percentage yeah it's just a, there are some okay, people so that, that like i say right now i've talked to a million people who have started to play the piano and mm-hmm. quit after six months mm-hmm. and i'm just saying some of them wouldn't have quit mm. well that returns to the whole notion of kadai and suzuki and all this other stuff because that's exactly the same argument i mm. put to you that actually what happens is that there is a percentage of the population that gets captivated in the production of music, which is not changeable. I mean, I But there's I'd a threshold they have to get past to, to realize that. Mm, mm. Well, that's interesting. So and that's, any, the, that's the thing, is that... It, that is could the guitar get, that instrument? Well, any... I don't think there's an instrument that's involved. It's a mind. It's a human mind who has heard music and been moved by it in such a way as to want to create it. Mm. But and, and so, well, but what you're talking about here is a threshold in order to create the music. And do you think the guitar is the best instrument for the that guitar, threshold? The best? No, I don't think there's any such thing as the best. That's what I'm saying. Is that well, of what we have? Well, well, no. Uh, I would say well, it depends on what you. Again, playing an instrument's different. If you're a flautist or a flutist or a guitarist, you're gonna, you know, or a pianist or a harpist. Okay, but, but let's return to this idea that there are a group of people out in the wilderness that don't play any instruments, and they're confronted by an instrument, and there's something about the physical shape oh, of that. My keyboard is the ideal thing. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's, hands down. If you have okay, to give so, somebody an instrument, this okay. is it. Okay, but out of the instruments that we have currently in the public domain, so to speak, yeah. what instrument do you think oh, lends keyboard. itself? Keyboard. You see, I would argue the guitar does. Well, okay, you can argue that. I'm sure you but can make I a case for that, too. I think it's the whole notion to argue of the, about it. <laughs> the whole notion of the guitar is, firstly, you get more access to notes in a shorter range, the, key, the whole notion of the keyboard is to do with the spans and the flexing and the movements of the fingers well, and all this. Is, no, kind don't of stuff tell and, me what the whole of the key because I play both guitar and keyboard. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I'm saying that okay, but this is the this, this is okay. So if you have someone who is having an aversion to learning the keyboard, maybe it's to do with the fact that the keyboard is not their ideal instrument. That, 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 I have no problem with that. Yeah, if somebody uh, yeah if somebody has an affinity to an instrument, the cello got me started. Mm. That was what I studied in college. Mm. And um, 
So you didn't play an instrument prior to college? No, I did. Oh, no, I played lots of instruments from when I was a kid. My very first instrument was accordion. And oh, I played wonderful. Uh, clarinet for several years and drums oh. and guitar and flute and keyboard. Oh, but cool. it was just, you know, again, it, it wasn't part of school. It was just something I was, you know, because I wanted to, to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of accordion did you play? Did you play a little squeeze box or, no, or a little accordion, a you know, it had, you know, like maybe 40 or 50 buttons on the right hand yep. side. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah it was so cool. did you have buttons on both sides or just buttons no, on no, one side? No, no, I had a regular keyboard on one side. Uh-huh. Very good. Very oh, it good. was cool. I loved it. I thought oh, it was really uh, that, cool. That is one of my favorite instruments of all time, too. And I used to play it at parties, actually, and do yeah. requests yeah. of things. But I had a lot yeah. of fun do with that. Do you still that. have an accordion? No, it was it was it was only Shame at a person's on house. I used to play. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, there are little things. My cello, which, which is shame on me. I I sold my violin in order to come over here. So yeah, that was the instrument that I sold to get out of Australia, um, and I haven't bought a violin since. But no, the um, the accordion. I it was at a house that I used to go over to and um, you know spend a Friday evening occasionally. And they found me playing the piano, and then they kind of pulled out of an attic this dusty old accordion, which meant that rather than doing requests just in one room, I could walk from room to room taking requests and doing medleys and a wide variety of things. It was great fun. It was great fun. Yeah, I need to get another. I don't think my wife... The thing about um, my current um, composition is that I can do it with headphones on and be... I don't know whether my wife would want medleys of accordion music. Don't take up the bagpipes. No, the accordion is very similar to the bagpipes, isn't it? Yes. It's yeah. a very similar musical instrument. People wouldn't think listening in, but in terms of the, no, just the volume of the yeah, drone. Yeah, the mechanism yeah. of it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's reeds in a. <laughs> yeah, it's a very similar instrument, and it's yeah, remarkably it loud. Of course, well. yes, it's, it yeah. really is pretty. Well, it, it's just got more possibilities than a bagpipe. Well, it depends on what kind of bagpipe. There's lots of kinds, too. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's a very similar instrument. Uh, but no, I, I do miss... And it was literally only over, I guess, a one, maybe two-year period that I played the accordion. But it's probably one of, the, you know, one of the more fun instruments I've played. I used to play the violin like that as well. I mean, I could do lots of requests on the violin and that kind of stuff. But uh, no, the accordion lent itself a lot more to quite strange, you know, uh, various... Of early punk and 80s songs and a variety of things. Um, what was it? Punk um, accordion. Oh, no, That's Blue cool. Monday. What That's is a it? great idea. Yeah. You've got an I, album there, I think. Yes, yes. I think it's cool. I think I, that's an awesome idea, actually. A, yeah, that's Roy of Hollywood territory, really. really? Isn't well, it? no, it's way beyond that, man. That's that's actually something that could catch on if it was done right. <laughs> the thing is that I would do, like, 1970s and also modern punk as well. I'd probably do some Green Day and things like that so you could keep both, both markets well, interested. Well, listen, it's your album, Good luck <laughs> i think it's a great oh, idea yeah i'll have to think about that um but no lots of possibilities with the it no so i had a lot of fun with that instrument so that's uh, aside from aside from keyboards in general i think that's probably the mutual uh, uh mutual enjoyment so so you had an accordion as a child yeah yeah and that brings to to memory a time when I could force myself into a fit of laughter. I remember I had a friend, and we used to get together, and there would be like three or four of us, and I don't really know how old we were. We must have been 
seven or eight, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Pretty young. And we had, there were some monkey bars or something in somebody's backyard. And we ended up laying on the ground and we'd start to make ourselves laugh. And then pretty soon we would be caught up in it. And we would go into these frenzies of laughter. (laughs) <laughs> that was my first high, I guess. Maybe that was yeah, laughing trances. Yeah, <laughs> because it was really cool, and we actually sat. I mean, we—I don't remember if we talked about it, but we knew what we were doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we met there, and we knew exactly what we were doing. We laid down on our backs, and we started uh-huh. f- pretending like we were laughing, uh-huh. and pretty soon, we were hysterical. It was awesome. <laughs> You might even want to lie on the ground now and just try it. That sounds like a, it sounds like a great relief. And how did the accordion fit in with that? that was well, just no, it was like... about the same time. That's all. It's just that I remember that, that those two sort of came up. They were about so I must have been eight, you know, eight years old or so when I was playing accordion. Mm. Mm. And what what it's did you? Adult... Vague. I, I have no memory of my childhood. I must have been terribly abused or something. Well, I wanted to. I wanted. I was wondering what your father did professionally. What your adopted father he, did he professionally? He sold um, oil products uh, from a company called Conoco, which was a big oh, okay. oil company a long time ago. Yeah. And he was a rep for that country company, and he went to you know basically around. I guess he serviced service stations mm. know, and, and kept them <gasps> in oil and uh, yeah. So were. my this is fascinating because. Um, my... I had no idea of that at the time, of course. Yeah. You know, I pieced all this together afterwards. <laughs> this is very interesting because my wife's uh, grandmother owned service stations with her husband in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So your adopted father and my wife's grandparents could have actually crossed Cross they were in LA. It certainly might well have. Yeah. No. Watson. <laughs> Watson Compton. Yeah. So yeah. 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 Fascinating. Fascinating. These small connections, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. My yeah, the relationship that my wife's family has with her grandmother ebbs and flows. I have a lot of time for the woman, um, but they're currently estranged. She didn't go to her granddaughter's wedding because of this nonsense that kind of goes backwards and forwards. But when I spend time with her, she came to my own wedding, actually. Um, I yeah, She tells these fascinating stories about L.A. in the 1920s and 1930s and just the kind of ebbs and flows and yeah, race. I've got right. a bunch of photos uh, from that period uh, yeah. of my, you know, that I got from my parents, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, it's well. It was a different universe, man. That was that was another world. Yeah. <laughs> well, the origins of Venice and these kind of things. I mean, I guess by the nineteen thirties, Venice was starting to lose some of its. Uh, it was starting. I probably it didn't really get tarnished. I think until the nineteen fifties, it was still a functioning. Uh, did you go to Venice as a child? No, I didn't go to Venice until I was uh, a hippie. Right. <laughs> well, it's well and truly tarnished by then. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I, I was ready it. for it at that point. I was disappointed. It wasn't decadent yes. enough for me. Yes. <laughs> yes. But uh, you, where did you live in that period? You told me it was um, 
I lived basically uh, in the be- at the beach. I lived in Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Manhattan Beach, Beach yes, and uh, Hermosa Beach. I lived in all three of them for a long time. South Bay is a great place. I loved that. That was oh, yeah. fun. That was where I woke up. Yes. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen the um, Have you seen the movie Blow? Um, I, I yes, I have, but I have almost no memory of it. That's Johnny Depp was in that, right? Yes, because Cocaine. he. He had his awakening at Manhattan Beach around the time that you, you were there too. Um, and yeah, that was when he started dealing weed at, in Manhattan Beach. <laughs> I actually bought the book. I sold the book when we left the UK, but the book is far better than the movie. Well, it's a great, uh, it was a great place. I tell you, man, Manhattan Beach was awesome. <laughs> well, that's, that's always portrayed in the movie. Well, like I say, but, it was, uh, like I said, that was the year 1967 that I woke up and I was in Manhattan Beach. Hmm. You know, I could hear the sound of the surf at night. Mm. The bikinis of Manhattan Beach were the uh, cause of your awakening. One particular bikini. Well, they were in involved in it. That was, <laughs> was part of the scenario. Yeah, yeah it wasn't but, the tech conferences. But, but you know, I mean, it's, it's really that when I look back at my life, um, which I don't do very often, actually, but now that I do, yeah, Manhattan Beach was a really Fun. Well, and her, yeah, the whole thing was really fun. That, that period, you know, the, the end of the hippie era before disco came in. Yes. You know, uh, was a really heady period. It was awesome. But by the early 70s, by 71, 72, did you realize that it was coming to an end? Um, I don't remember now. Okay. But, um, there was an event, I think I might have mentioned before, when they took KPPC off the air. Yes. Yeah. That that was the, what marked it for me. And I don't yeah. know exactly when that was. I suppose I could figure it out if I actually wasn't so. But that crazy. would have been the that would have been the mid seventies, probably. Probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was. Um, you know, maybe I'm just naive, but I like I say, I never gave up on the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I cut yes. my hair. <laughs> you know. Certainly, yes. But I, yeah. I'm still for creating a new planet, you know? I mean, it's the yeah. same thing I was working for then. Yeah. It's a good vision to have, her. It's a good vision to well, have. it keeps me going. I mean, if you're going <laughs> to have to have a, a hallucination to go on, well, that's a good one. <laughs> you know? Fair enough, yeah. I think a lot of people lose track of that, though. I mean, I, I reflect on my own parents that were... I don't know. I mean, I have photographic and record evidence, actually, that, you know, my parents were well and truly part of that movement. But if I look at them now, they, yeah, they went through, I guess, a period of kind of conservatization, which I guess was really part of, of some of your generation. Oh, well, that least. was most of them. Again, yeah, yeah. Most people, they, they, when it was all over, they got a haircut and went to work at IBM. Yeah, got a real job. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. That's the beauty about the punks and the people, you know, with spikes coming out of their foreheads, is uh, they're not going to get a job at IBM. You know, there, there's no going back for them. Well, look <laughs> at well, no, the no, but look at grunge. No, that's complete. Well, the grunge proves that to be wrong because people moved to Seattle and then ended up working for you know Amazon, Microsoft, and Boeing. Well, yeah, but that's a really weird environment. You're right, with with those exceptions, but I'm just talking about the sort of mainstream environment. Uh, no, you're right. You're, you're right. In in some places, those people, if they've got talent, yeah. They, but the problem is very few people have the kind of talent that are going to overcome the horns coming out of their forehead. 
Mm, I guess so. I mean, I guess... Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny thing with regards to... I I have this... I mean, when I met my wife, I don't think she... She had a nose piercing and a tongue piercing, and she has a tattoo on her hand and on her back. And now... Uh, she covers the tattoo on her hand for most of her work. She's lost the nose piercing and tongue piercing. Everyone I met in California of my age group, though, had tattoos and piercing. <laughs> I know. I feel like a freak because I don't have any tattoos. <laughs> yes. you know? I have yeah, no simply. interest. I have zero oh, exactly. interest in getting one. Yeah, I've got lots of scars, which I think are not the much same more character tattoos. building. Yes, exactly. yeah, much yeah. cooler. Yeah, right. Yeah, so Wrinkles, they actually have yeah, a feel me. sorts of things, you know. You know? So, but uh, no, I found it quite <laughs> surreal when I was in something. I mean, before I met my wife, but even while I was dating my wife, that um, yeah, yeah, I the guess, most, I, yeah. I mean, at least uh, some very subtle thing on their ankle. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, on the grossest looking people too. That's what's even really interesting is people who have no concern whatsoever for their physical organism who are three hundred pounds overweight. Yeah. With skin that looks like it really needs to be dealt with in some way, seriously, but have yeah. got tattoos. Yes. <laughs> you know, interesting psychology going on there. Well, it's interesting, yeah. I mean, in the, in the UK, the people I knew who had tattoos had been in the military. And yeah, there that was, was a, pretty much what it was associated with throughout most, yeah. Yeah. It was the Navy in particular. Certainly. <laughs> I mean, the people I knew, um, had, yeah, they went to the Navy. They were in various um, special operations. The UK, it's interesting in the UK. I was watching a, um, a program about Northern Ireland, and it made me realise that a few of the people I correspond with in the UK were actually part of the British forces in Northern Ireland. And it may it gives me a kind of chill because they have the perspective that they were there as well. I mean their their history is that of, of I mean they went on to do um peacekeeping operations in uh in Bosnia and in the former Yugoslavia and things like that. So and there they you know, there they were very much counting skulls and doing various other barbaric things. But when they were in Northern Ireland they were really a military force just to be there to kind of, you know, keep keep the various parties in line. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's totally, I mean, this is all still very much part of our consciousness. This, I mean, as, as there are young men and women well, that are history. over. That's the history yeah. of nationalism and identity with your race and your, yeah. you know, and that stuff is fundamental to people. That's what I'm saying. You, you question that for some people, and you're questioning their very existence. I mean, that, very much so. You know, yeah. That, yeah. And that, and again, I don't see any hope for the world until that becomes a drastically minority concept. Yes. I don't see how this planet can possibly function with our energy sources and our in- science and still be subject to the kinds of sh- bullshit that we've been suffering. I mean, it's just. In a, I, I just don't see how we can get around it. So, returning to this idea, which um, it, it sometimes causes sparks and sometimes causes a flat um, point, so I'm not even sure why I continue to raise it. But this notion <laughs> of military in this country, hmm. what is the seed of disbelief? Because certainly, in, through you know, through the '60s, the the notion that the military was actually part of the problem was pretty 
pretty well voiced by you know people well, that yeah, yeah. really yeah the hippies i mean that was certainly part of the military industrial complex the war the all yeah. of it yeah sure that but was now the central seems, focus of it, actually. Exactly. But now the peace movement seems to almost be timid to say that because I don't know whether it's a popular perception, <laughs> yeah, but certainly yeah. it's a perception in the media that the, the military is uh, supporting Americans are not ready for a revolution. Americans mm-hmm. are deep in the trance still. It's, it's strange because it's such an armed population. This is the thing that always strikes me, that the, the whole notion of the... You know the right to bear arms and to you know crush repression and all this kind of stuff that a well-armed militia and all these kind of things would be <laughs> exactly what should start things off. But in fact, it has the opposite effect. Well, I yeah, I don't understand. I yeah, I don't. I don't. I've never understood much of anything really. And the yeah. the old order is absurd, and <laughs> we're going to have to do much better than that. And I don't think it would be that difficult, really, to do better than what we've got. Yes. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. Uh, My sense is we should be that all legality, I mean, again, assuming we have conscious human beings who know the difference between their opinions and uh, what it is their opinions are about, that all the laws we'd need could be written on one side of an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. Mm. And well, that's that's a notion of the Ten Commandments. Well, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, something like I think th- that we may get to a point, and I hope relatively soon, that we will be able to state those sort of basic rules for living together on as a global citizens. What you can do, what you can't do. Here. Yes, it's also the idea of the, the lawmaker which is a beautiful term that is only typically used in this country, even though politicians the world over do exactly the same phenomena. But they just basically spew out laws yeah. to create this... <laughs> machine to keep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's, so, just yeah, that, it's just an absolutely insane... <laughs> says the, the, the amount of man eons <laughs> committed uh, to people... Doing shit. Well, I mean, when you look at the the majority of what people actually do at work, very few of them actually contribute anything of any value to anybody's actual survival. Mm-hmm. Well, aside from their own. Well, yeah. Well, you know what I'm talking about. That what they're actually doing is wasting resources, uh, you know, and getting paid for it. Exactly. And, and it provides no value to anybody, any mm-hmm. actual human being who needs to eat and be sheltered. Yes, but that's. The whole notion of currency as well. I mean, that's a problem as well, much. Yeah, with the whole system. The whole work. system yeah. from top to bottom. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not about reforming it. It's literally about its deconstruction and reconstruction uh, of something that's more reasonable. But the, the question then comes uh, about a truly egalitarian society, whether there would be any benefit in music and poetry and these kind of things. Um, so it is a, yeah. Well, it seems obvious to me, because survival would no longer be an issue. Yes. See, in my, in my, see, I've I've already been through this, you know, in some. I'd imagine. Yeah. The, uh, in assuming a world in which people have signed on, you know, with obligations and with rights, and the, the, this one page of 
you know, they are swearing when they join that they will live by those rules. Yes. Given that, uh, we probably wouldn't need to work more than uh, three or four weeks a year. Individually, we could easily arrange things so that we could have everything we could ever possibly need and, Mm. and work practically nothing. But we need to divide that out. So basically it'd be, say, three weeks, two weeks, a month, a year. And you go to the draft, basically. You do something that's needed to create, you know, and the rest of the year you're free to do whatever the hell you want to do. Mm. Now that's got all sorts of implications, obviously. Clearly, <laughs> you yes. Know, you can go lots of places from there. And that frightens the hell out of some people. But mm. it doesn't frighten me one bit. Mm. It looks to me like 11 months a year to do anything <laughs> I want to do. True. <laughs> true. True. Isn't this the idea of retirement, though? Well, it's the idea of not of of survival not being the point of life, but but mm. the point of life being what are you going to do now that you're alive? Mm. What are you going to do with your life? That becomes yeah. the reason to exist, not just merely to exist. We've been merely existing for hundreds of thousands of years, and we have the opportunity to put that behind us. Certainly, certainly. But I think the yeah the whole uh, the whole modern day vision. Well, not really anymore because. You know, the retirement went south with uh, the financial <laughs> yeah. markets for yeah. those that put well, their money. Well, some people, that's still, a good, that's, that's still something for some people. There are people in this society who are going to retire, and that'll work. Yes. But it's a yes. very quickly shrinking group. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, with that, um, with that somewhat happy note, I think you, you've left me a lot of food for Shit, thought. I'm just evening. getting started, Tom. I oh, know, oh. but my legs are numb, and I've got to be up early tomorrow morning. Oh, and I'm sitting, that's right. I'm okay. sitting in a Buddha position on a bed, thinking, uh, thinking that yeah, the okay. evening. Okay, listen, is listen, it's your show, man. It is. <laughs> it's so. it so. so yeah, I'm going to have to try and top KMO in my. Uh, in my future guests, I'm not sure who I'm aiming for next, but I do have some ideas in terms of additional guests for uh, for the program. And yeah, and then hopefully they will be. Uh, I haven't heard anything from Tracy. If, if we conclude on this point, well, listen, I, I think it really it needs to be self-generating. If people aren't <laughs> interested enough in them, if you have to market it to people and, and motivate them to get involved, well then, uh, sorry, the audio dropped for a minute here. Oh, okay. Can you hear yeah. me now? Yes, I can. Okay. I can. Did you hear what I said? I think if, it's important. If I have to self, yes. If I have to self market this thing, if then, you got to motivate then, people, yeah. then it's not well, or unless it's worth it. To, I mean, some people do think that's how people build movements: is they mm-hmm. think it's worth their time to actually keep people motivated. And I certainly get the sense that KMO thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So, um, well, he's sort of an odd guy. Like you say, there's part of me that, that really connected with him, although I have no idea what it was now. Uh, <laughs> But there was a part of me that was also fairly repulsed by him. Yes. So, um, you know, they're both there. I have no idea which one is which or what it was, but that's a good good. start, you know. I think so. That's a good place to begin. And I'm sure we'll figure out which areas are which pretty quick. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. So until, uh, until about this time next week, Heron, it's been a pleasure as always. Good night. Good night, Tom.